right, please be seated. Okay, so in our sermon series today in Shorter Catechism, we've come to the last of those three questions that I said kind of belong together that have to do with the law of God that follow the Ten Commandments in the Catechism. And so let's go ahead and confess the answers to these three questions. The first one is question 82. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. The reality is, is that as long as we're in this world, we will always come short of perfect obedience. Always. That's what this is saying. We are so accustomed to this state of affairs that sometimes we don't think much about the fact of our sin and being with us all the time. We kind of ignore it. And we don't think of what a horrendous thing sin really is. That's where we're going with today's question when we get to it in a moment. But let me assure you that you know it is a horrendous thing as we're going to see today. So the sin that is always with us is something that we should take seriously. So often I think we don't change because we just sort of get, we, we kind of make a truce with our sin and we say, oh, well, yeah, it's, not, it's not that bad. And we go on that way. But no, we have sin in our lives. We still do. And it's sin and it needs to be taken seriously. Question 83 asks the question, though, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Of course, being more heinous means that some sins are worse than others. They're not the same. We looked at that last week. I showed you how the Lord often speaks of one sin being worse than another. And we talked about what it means by aggravations. Trust that you remember that. What is an aggravation to sin? It's something that makes, if you have the same sin, and it has an aggravation in one occasion and not in the other, the aggravation is something that makes the sin worse than it would be without the aggravation. For example, if you steal something and you're hungry, then that's not as bad as if you steal the same thing when you're not hungry, if you're full. And the aggravation is that you didn't really need it when you stole it in the first case, But in the second case, you were hungry, you needed it. So that makes the sin a greater sin, you see, when you did it when you were full. So that obviously would make sense, wouldn't it? That uh, some sins are worse than others because of aggravations. But saying that some sins are worse than others, we have to be careful because it doesn't at all suggest that any sin is trivial. And that's the tendency that our wicked hearts want to go to say, oh, well, it's not a big thing. It doesn't matter. No, we need to, again, take it seriously. The question we're looking at today, question 84, makes this very clear. It says, question 84, what doth every sin deserve? Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, not in this life and that which is to come. It's quite easy to understand what the catechism says here, isn't it? The hard part especially because of the way that people look at things today, is to accept this truth. Understand what it's saying. Every single sin deserves God's wrath and curse, not only in this life, but also in that which is to come. We deserve to go to hell 
for every little sin that we ever commit. It's a big deal. That's what the people realized in Deuteronomy 5 when they came before God. Who can stand before this great God was their thought. And it's true. No one, not one of us can stand apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's a truth that's hard for sinners to accept, but it's one that's clearly taught in the Bible. You know, you should go to hell for what you've done today if you got what you deserved, what you've done at church, what you've done in this service so far. Because there's been sin. You've come short. There's been things that were wrong with it. Our scripture reading today from the, from the New Testament is from Galatians chapter 3, 1 through 14. We're going to use this passage to look at this doctrine and to see what God's word says about it. So Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? Or by hearing of faith, the hearing of faith. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There we end the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You can see in this passage that Paul is calling the Galatians fools because they were ignoring what God had done to save them. In verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Jesus Christ had been set before their eyes through preaching, not physically. There were Gentiles that didn't meet him physically, but he'd been set forth through preaching as crucified. And it had been by believing in him that they had come to have relation with God, to come to receive the spirit of God and and have been able to work miracles. God in these days to confirm the testimony of the apostles and the gospel that they were preaching caused many miracles to be done when people came to receive the gospel. It confirmed that believing in Jesus was God's way of salvation. So he says, did you do those miracles by obeying the law, 
or did you do it by them by trusting in Jesus Christ, which is God's way that he has confirmed to you? Even Abraham was not righteous by works, was he? But rather counted as righteous by believing God's promise to save him. Verse 6 shows that Abraham had his acceptance by faith. It says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now follow along in your Bible and you see in verse 8 and 9, it shows that faith is the way that the Gentiles are blessed. It's not some other way. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. They're not blessed in a different way than Abraham. He, he was blessed by trusting God. So are the nations. So the Galatians were being idiots because they were acting as if now they could be blessed and be right with God by keeping the law, by the works of the law. Why do they think Christ had been crucified if our acceptance was based on the works of the law? I mean, why would he come and die if you could be saved by keeping the work, by the works of the law? And this brings us to verse 10, where Paul tells them that whoever tries to gain God's acceptance by keeping the law will end up being cursed. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He is comparing those who are relying on keeping the law. He says that they are of the works of the law. The people that are relying on keeping the works of the law are of the works of the law. He's comparing them with those who have faith in Christ. He referred to them in verse 9 as those who are of faith. So they're either of the works of the law or they're of faith. His point is that anyone who relies on keeping the law is cursed because the standard is that you're cursed unless you continue perfectly in all things which are written in the book of the law. So now, in Galatians 3.10, we have presented to us the raw truth that every sin deserves God's curse. Okay, that we deserve to go to hell for every single infraction, every single sin. That's our subject today. So let's unpack this verse, verse 10. First of all, let's consider what it means to be cursed. To put it very simply, to be cursed means is to have God set against you to punish you. Sometimes people like to say that sin is its own punishment. This is appealing because it takes the edge off of having to say that God actually tortures sinners. That he, as it says, beats them with many stripes. And that, as it says in Revelation 20.10, he torments them day and night forever. Well, that's not a comfortable doctrine to us, is it? So we like to say, well, sin just has natural consequences. People just are brought into their own, um, own mess. But God's curse is not just leaving us up to our own misery. It's his active visitation of persons with painful punishments. All through the Bible, the curse is presented as God's action, not just what people stumble into. He is said to have his way in the whirlwind, for example. He is said to send famines. 
in Deuteronomy 28, where the curses are listed, it says things like, the Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to. Verse 20, the Lord will make the plague cling to you. Verse 21, the Lord will strike you with consumption and fever. Verse 22, there's nothing passive here. Those aren't just consequences that you stumble into. This is God acting upon them with his wrath and curse. It's never just leaving of us to our own consequences of our own way. It's very personal and very active. You can see how in Galatians 3, the curse of God is set in contrast with the blessing of God. Those who are of faith obtain the blessing of Abraham, but those who rely on their own works are cursed. Just as the blessing certainly involves God doing good to us, so the curse involves God bringing us into misery, which he does to unbelievers. Consider further that the blessing of God and the curse of God are absolute. Every person is either blessed or cursed. If you are a faith trusting in Christ to make you right with God, you are blessed with Abraham. God will make you right with him. If you are of the works of the law, then you are cursed. It is one way or the other. Either you have God's favor or he is bringing you to, and he's bringing you to everlasting happiness or you have his curse and he is bringing you to everlasting misery. You can see the abs, this absolute contrast between the two through scripture. It's not like somebody is partly blessed and partly cursed. Psalm 1 speaks of the man who is blessed and of the man who is not. It sets them in contrast with each other. Likewise, in Deuteronomy 28, the chapter I read to you before, the whole chapter speaks of either blessing or cursing. The blessing is very comprehensive. Verse 2 says, all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. In uh, verse 3, it says, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground and the increase of your herds the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The curse is likewise comprehensive. Deuteronomy 28, 15 says, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, And all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Not some of them, but all of them. The same ones that were blessings, same things that were blessed, will be cursed. In verse 16, he says, Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the country. So you see he's taking the same items and saying the opposite opposite result. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your hand. The increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. It's just saying everything about you. The specific things are not important. You say, well, I don't have a flock. Yeah, of course not. But you, you have lots of things in your life. All of those things are blessed and cursed. And understand that the blessing and the curse does not cease at death. So I'm saying it's, it's comprehensive. It's not just like a little bit of a curse, a little bit of a blessing. No, we're either blessed or we're cursed. 
The person who is blessed is blessed forever. The person who is cursed is cursed forever. This was clear to the people of old. Those looking for God's promised blessing often suffered greatly in this life because they were looking for the promise of blessing. In Psalm 1, David speaks of the blessed man as the one who will stand in the day of judgment. So you see, it's not just in this life. And uh, he says in verse 2 that the ungodly will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So that the curse follows a person after they die is also made clear in the teaching of our Lord. For example, he often speaks about what will happen to the wicked at the day of judgment. In Matthew eight twelve. you know, someone told me one time that um, they said, oh, Jesus never spoke about hell. <laughs> and that's not true at all. He spoke about it more than anyone. They'd, they'd taken a New Testament class and some professor had told him that um, <laughs> at, at Dalhousie, but <laughs> it's completely wrong. In Matthew eight twelve, twenty two thirteen. 24:51 and 25:30 just in Matthew he speaks of the sons of the kingdom being cast into the place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth obviously a place of conscious torment and agony and in Matthew 25 he makes the contrast between those who are blessed and those who are cursed in eternity he shows that both are eternal to be blessed he says Matthew 25:34 Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to the cursed, he says, Matthew 25, 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the temporal fire? No, the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 46, he adds, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. So the punishment is just as eternal as the, um, the blessing. So you see from this that what many people want to deny cannot be denied on the basis from, from God's word. That the curse of God is God's personal pursuit of the wicked to punish them. That the curse is absolute so that each person is either blessed or cursed. And that when a person is cursed, that punishment will not end at death. It will continue to eternity and rather intensify at death and even and be furthered at the last day. Just because our wicked and and unjust generation does not like these truths and just because they complain that these truths are unjust does not make it so. God is the judge of all the earth and he does what is truly right. So how wicked, then, does a person have to be to deserve God's wrath and curse? Many people will say that, well, very well that there be a hell for someone like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin. Um, But how bad does a person have to be according to God's word, not according to popular opinion? What does the Bible say about it? What does it say in our verse that we're looking at, Galatians 3.10? First of all, it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. What does Paul mean again when he says as many as are of the works of the law? Remember what we saw. He is contrasting those who are of the works of the law with those who are of faith with Abraham. 
In other words, he's talking about anyone who tries to make themselves right with God by the works of the law instead of trusting Christ. He says that all of them who try to do that, make themselves right by the works of the law, are under a curse. As many as are striving to be right with God by keeping the law are under the curse, God is actively opposed to all of those. And in wrath, they are headed for everlasting misery. And then Paul quotes in, from Deut- Deuteronomy 27, 26 to explain why. Why are they cursed? He says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who continue, does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Look at how strong that statement is. He says that they must continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Not some things, but all things, or they're cursed. They have to constantly continue without deviation in every single thing that is written in the law, or they will be cursed. And we've seen what it is to be cursed, right? It's absolute, permeates everything, it's eternal, it's something that goes on and on. There may be perfect there must be perfect conformity or there is cursing forever for anyone who tries to be acceptable to God by obeying God's commandments because that person comes short. That's the reason that all who are of the works of the law are under the curse because none of them except Jesus can perfectly keep it and that's what's required. As we saw two weeks ago, we daily break God's commandments in thought, word, and deed. All the time we do. Who can say that he has ever truly kept the most important commandment of all? To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. When have you ever even done that? Once in all of your life. You know, we can, we can say that, he, that no, no one can say he's done that. Cursed are all who are of the works of the law, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This doctrine is confirmed Throughout the Bible, it's the teaching of James 2.10, which says, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. You don't have to do some great sin to be guilty of all, to be cursed. No, just stumble in one point, and it places you under the curse of God. That's all it takes, a single infraction. Anything less than perfect compliance consigns you to ruin. We saw recently in Romans 3 where it says that there is none righteous, no, not one. You can see why now. If the standard is that we must continue in all things that are written in the book of the law without any infractions whatsoever, then obviously no one is righteous. And then it adds in verse 19 in Romans 3 that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. They can't boast and say that, well, I've kept the law. The answer is, no, you haven't. Did you continue in all things that were written in the book of the law? Obviously, if those who are trying to be righteous under the law are guilty, then what does that say about those who are not even trying, who who aren't even attempting, don't, don't even have the law maybe? If those who have God's standard and strive to keep it fail then where does that leave those who don't even have the standard or who are not trying? All the world is guilty. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, 
no flesh will be justified or found righteous in God's sight. All who try in that way and all who do not try at all are guilty and so are under God's curse. So the, the pe- if the people of the law can't be justified by the law, then so much more people who are not, don't have the law cannot be justified by obedience to God. Now, just to drive the reality of this home, I want to illustrate with a, an illustration that I, uh, I brought to you a few years ago of, of little Alice. And uh, this is when we were taking up a, uh, a collection for an earthquake that I did this illustration. Little Alice is an eight-year-old girl who has a big heart. She's a very sweet little girl who, who says her prayers. And she's saving up her money to buy a little puppy dog that uh, her mom told her she could buy. And there's one that has just been born, and little Alice has already given the breeder a $100 deposit for this little little pup. And after two whole years of saving and finding you know little jobs to do and things like that, Alice had come up with $650, and she had found this little puppy that was for sale for $500. So she would even have $150 left over. It's a pretty good situation. But Alice has just heard from someone, from word and deed, heard someone speak about the earthquake that happened in Nepal. This is in 2015. And it killed 9,000 people and left 200,000 people homeless. She heard that although 335,000 had been raised, that 63,000 is still needed to accomplish the work that word and deed is doing. Little Alice's heart is moved for these people in Nepal. She thinks that giving she thinks about giving the extra 150 that she earned because she could still buy her puppy then but instead she decides to give all that she has to word and deed to help what alice did was a wonderful thing in itself and i tell you that as one who is in jesus christ as her savior she will receive a great reward Even a cup of cold water will receive a great reward. But what if Alice is to be judged on the basis of what she did, this wonderful work, as one who is not of faith, but one who is of the works of the law, one who is looking to be right with God based on what she did or or did not do? Well, the truth is, in that case, her, her good deed her wonderful deed actually becomes a wicked deed. It is good in itself to give relief to those who are in need. But Alice actually had a touch of anger toward God. Not a lot of anger, but why did God send us to these people? Why did they, that they would have to suffer these things? She was a little bit incensed with God and was wanting to relieve them partly because, well, God didn't do right to these people. She wouldn't say that, but that was in there, that I'm going to make this right. This is an injustice that has happened here. Why did he let this earthquake happen? She also had a lot of pride about what she had done, and she looked with disdain on her sister, who only gave $5. You know, she, gave, she gave everything that she had. Her sister gave $5. And there were a lot of other things that made her work 
less than perfect. You have to continue in all things, you see, that are written in the book of the law to be right with God. If we stumble in one point, then it makes us guilty of all. Is it, all that we've done is unacceptable to God if we're relying on what we do. You see, we must continue in all things written in the law. So you will say, well, then it's impossible for us to do good. And that's the point. That's exactly the point. We're fallen creatures. You're not right. You see, if you're trying to be accepted by the works of the law, then you're never going to be able to be accepted on that basis. You will always come short because evil is always present with you. That's what Paul said, the one that tries to do good. Evil is always, he always found evil was present when he was trying to do good. So unless you are trusting Christ, you're cursed because you're not perfect. But keep in mind, if Alice is in Christ, I want to say again, then both Alice's sins, will, will, the two sins I mentioned, will be covered, and her deed, in as much as it was good, will be greatly rewarded. It was, in fact, most pleasing to God for her as a little child to do this to honor her Lord. And now I want to show you that you fully deserve to be cursed for every sin. Okay? We need, to, we need to get hold of it personally. Why is this? First, we deserve to be cursed for every sin, even the least sin, because even the least sin makes us a perverted image of God. One of your highest privileges is that you are made in God's image. As His image is our calling as human beings, to represent the wisdom, the holiness, the justice, the goodness, the kindness, the grace, the love of God. We are like a picture of God in human form. And it is our great duty and privilege to be a living picture that shows forth His excellence and perfection. We were created with the ability to do that initially. We lost the ability when we fell But it's only because of our rebellion we're responsible for as part of the human race in Adam that we now distort God's image and twist it. We're still a picture of him in human form, but now we are a distorted picture that misrepresents him, a picture that tells lies. It would be better if we were not a picture, if we were not the image of God. But we are the image of God and then we show a distorted picture of God as, as the image of God. Every sin is a distortion, and anything that distorts the perfections of God is worthy of eternal punishment. It's such a privilege, again, to, to be God's image. It's a great wickedness, then, to pervert His image. Not only that, but being made in His image also means that we were created with a capacity to know God and to worship God. Unlike the animal king kingdom, we are able to know him and to respond to him in the things that we do. And that response should be one of praise for his marvelous glory, constant thanksgiving for all of his goodness and mercy to us, and an all-consuming desire to please him and to obey him. Anything short of that is not a slight imperfection. It is a glaring, reprehensible sin against our Maker So that's the first thing. We deserve to be cursed for even the least sin because even the least sin makes us a perverted image of God. Second, we deserve to be cursed because we have disobeyed God who is worthy of nothing less 
than perfect obedience. Sin always denies that God is worthy, and that is a denial that cannot stand. You understand what I mean by that? How does sin deny that God is worthy? Well, whenever we disobey Him, we're suggesting that God isn't worthy of our obedience. Why should I obey Him? Like Pharaoh says, God says, let my people go. Why should I obey? Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? And that's where justice is called for. God had to meet that with justice. Justice makes right the wrongs that are done and corrects the distorted record that we have created, the record that says by our action that God's not worthy to be obeyed. The record must be set straight because no distortion about our glorious maker, the God of gods and the Lord of lords, can be allowed to stand in the universe that he made. The record can only be set straight by punishment that is equal to the crime. There's no other way to make it right. Our sin must be punished with, e- with an equal punishment to the wrong that was done. In human courts, if you steal something, you need to replace what you have stolen plus incur damages for the inconvenience and such that you caused. If you take someone's life, you deserve to have your life taken. That's how the record is set straight between humans. But how is the record set straight when we consider that we have disobeyed God, who is worthy of perfect obedience? Well, that calls for the wrath and curse of God as our catechism says, both in this life and that which is to come. How do I know that? Because of what we saw before, that God curses us if we do not continue what? In all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. God curses us because that is what our sin deserves in order to set the record straight. That's what must be done. But let me add the wonderful news that there are two ways for the record to be set straight. Two ways for the terms of justice to be met or satisfied, for justice to be satisfied. Do you, are you with me about why it, justice must be satisfied? Okay, there's two ways that it can, it can be satisfied. There is the way that we have already spoken about at length today, that we would be cursed forever, with, which means torment forever, that's one way that the record can be set straight. That's how our denial that God is worthy of our perfect obedience is corrected to say, no, but he is worthy okay, by our suffering forever. The other way is that which is described in Galatians three thirteen and 14 in our passage. The curse, as we have just seen, is the payment of the penalty we owe for our sin. For behaving as though God is not worthy of perfect obedience from us. But verse 13 speaks about Christ redeeming us from the curse. And how does he go about redeeming us? By becoming a curse for us. That means that he pays the penalty for us. So that the wrong that we have done is set right, not by us, but by him. He takes responsibility for it. Look at verse 13, and you can see that. It says, Christ has redeemed us. He's taken us out from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 
So it was transferred, the curse was taken from him to us. It says, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. So on the cross, on the wood, he was, he was hung. On the cross or the tree, as it says here, he suffered the curse for his people. And what is the result of his doing that? Look at verse 14. He did it that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Regardless of what they may have done, they all came short. The curse is taken off of Christ, I mean, off of them and put onto Christ. So that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He bore the curse so that instead of being cursed for our sin, which is what we deserve, we might be blessed instead of cursed. Blessed the same way that Abraham was blessed by trusting in God. We receive the Spirit through faith. The Holy Spirit who has given us a pledge to show us that we are now in God's favor instead of under God's curse. So when you receive the Holy Spirit who gives you new life, it shows that, that you are under God's favor now. And you see how we receive the blessing. How did we receive the Spirit? It was through faith, the same way that Abraham received the blessing. To have faith in Christ means that we trust in what he did because what we do is always short. It's always tainted by sin and can only bring God's curse. You must see then that the only way for the record to be set straight is either for you to be cursed or for Christ to be cursed for you as he was on the cross for his people. Israel must trust in him and so must the Gentiles, people from other nations. Either that or you, they, are left to bear the curse yourself. Christ has set us free from the curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. Third, understand that we deserve to be cursed because God is holy and we are unfit to dwell in his presence. In other words, we would go there and we wouldn't fit in before him at all. We would be a a, a defiled and polluted thing in the presence of a holy God. God by nature cannot dwell with what is sinful. He is holy, and it is his glorious, pure nature to envelop in flames of holy wrath and indignation anything that is not perfectly holy. This is a good thing, not a bad thing about God. Now, it's bad for us as sinners in that way, except that there's this way that we just talked about of uh, Christ saving us. But this is, this is a glorious thing about God that just, Sin is not, it can't be in his presence. You see, we're not fit if sin is in our lives. Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. What does he consume? He consumes that which is not holy. Habakkuk 1, 13 says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. That's another reason why if we are not in Christ, we must be cast in the place of outer darkness then. Because what is sinful cannot dwell with God. You see, so that's the third reason we're looking at here. It is very instructive that whenever human beings have seen even a shadowy representation of God, which is the best that we ever see of him in this world, when we're given a very privileged, certain people that were given a special privilege of seeing a vision of God and his, his glory, 
they immediately realize when they see that that they can't dwell before God as they are. That's what the people realized at Sinai that we read in Deuteronomy 5. It was a special revelation of God. They said, we will die. We read earlier about that, how Israel responded. They knew that they deserved to be cursed. They said, now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, then we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? And I told you, I showed you that in the text, God responded that they were right in what they said to think of him that way. As far as the law goes, they didn't measure up. This great fire will consume us. They must have an atonement then. They must have redemption, but they also must be changed if they're going to come before God. So even if they are forgiven, how could they come before a holy God? They need to be changed. And it's true, if we are to dwell with God, then we must be changed. God promises that we shall be changed. The Holy Spirit, I said, was given in testimony that we are resting in Christ and that he begins to work in our lives and change us. We see the Spirit's evidence by the fruit that that he brings. And that fruit and that growth that's going on, that's a pledge and a down payment that he's going to complete that work and make us so that we are without spot or blemish. Already we have the first fruits of the Spirit when we have believed in Christ. We've had a change, a radical change. He's taken away our stony heart given us a heart that responds to God, that delights in the law of God from within. But we groan now. There's still sin in our lives. And we groan waiting for the full redemption, the fullness of sonship. We say with Paul, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's hard to even imagine what we will be like. As it says in 1 John 3, we don't know what we will be. We are so accustomed to sin and You know, we've done nothing else but come short of the glory of God as long as we've lived throughout all our days. And we live among people who do nothing else but come short of the glory of God, even when they try their best. But we have received the Holy Spirit as a pledge that God will bring that work of new life to completion when we come to dwell before him. We're already accepted in Christ and he receives even our imperfect works. But when we get to heaven, we will no longer have imperfect works. We will be conformed to the perfect image of his son and able to dwell before him. That's why Paul refers to the blessing of Abraham, not only as the redemption that we have in Christ, but also, what does he say in Galatians? The promise of the Holy Spirit. Those go together. They go hand in hand. Without the change, you will not be permitted to enter glory. So you see then that every sin deserves God's wrath and curse forever because, okay, the three things we just saw, just to review them, because we are God's image and we distort him by, we have distorted him by our sin. That's the first reason. Second, because God is worthy and his justice demands that we be cursed to show that that he is worthy of all obedience that we have not given him. And third, because God is holy and cannot dwell with sinful beings without cursing them. So those are three reasons that every sin, your sin, every infraction deserves to be cursed. 
But how does it help you to know that your sin deserves God's curse? Certainly not a very pleasant truth. Why do we need to talk about it? You know, this is something we'd rather, let's not talk, let's, let's not talk about that. I remember uh, hearing uh, a, a liberal um, preacher, it was uh, Robert Schuler. And uh, someone was talking to him about, you know, people need to know that there's, oh no, he said, don't, don't need to know there are sinners, don't talk about that. that, I don't want to talk about that, people don't want to hear that, they don't want to know about that. Well, that's true, isn't it? They don't. But they need to, don't they? And that's what I want to show you now, why? Why do we need to hear it when it's an uncomfortable thing? So I, don't, I don't like that, I don't want to know about that, I'd rather not think about it. No, you need to think about it. Oh, here are seven ways that that it helps you to know that you fully deserve God's curse. First of all, it helps you to see and know God as he is. We have such shallow thoughts of God. We do not see the holiness that I spoke of before that was revealed in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When you see how offensive sin is, then it helps you to better see the holiness and the majesty of God. And what a great thing it is to offend him. This is such unfamiliar territory to us. But by his grace, we begin to see. We should always cry out for him to show us his glory. And one way that we see that is by looking at what sin deserves. Secondly, it helps you to see your truth condition before him as a sinner. If you're sick, you need to know about it. When Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord, even though he was especially known for his godliness among all the people, he was overwhelmed with his sinful condition. He cried out in 6.5, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. He was a prophet. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was not corrected for saying that either. Uh, for seeing things that way, but it was rather cleansed with a coal from the altar. God took that as so. Yeah, your lips are unclean. Here, let me purge your lips with this coal from the altar, lest you die. All others who saw God revealed had similar experiences. Even Paul, who cried out, who will deliver me from this body of death? So you desperately need to see the truth about yourself. Everyone tends to minimize their sin and guilt, especially today. It's a characteristic of our day. You need to see that. So that's a reason for the, um, how it helps you to see that every sin deserves God's curse. Thirdly, it helps you to see this so that you can see how much you need Christ. When you realize that even your best works have so much sin in them, that they deserve God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come, what should your conclusion be? That you need Christ. <laughs> you then, you're, in a, you're in a good position when you see what, you're, what you deserve to see the very thing that Paul was trying to impress upon the Galatians. You can't be justified by the works of the law. You foolish Galatians, what are you thinking? If you approach God on the basis of your own righteousness, will you be accepted? Of course you will not. You will be condemned. The question to you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that you will be utterly condemned and cursed if you do not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them? If that's the basis by which you stand before God. 
if it's not Christ? Is, is, that, uh, that's something that, is that something that you truly believe? You, oh, no, I don't really believe that. Well, on what basis do you not believe it? Fourthly, it helps you to love him more because you see how much you have been forgiven. Jesus spoke to Simon the Pharisee about this when a woman who was a sinner came to wash Jesus' feet with her hair and, to, and with oil that she had, with her tears and with oil. Jesus told Simon that the one who is forgiven much loves much, and the one who is forgiven little loves little. Because you see, Simon thought, he said, well, Jesus must not be a prophet to have a woman like this. Does he not know what kind of woman this is that is washing his feet? What kind of woman was she? She was one who had come and trusted in Jesus Christ and was forgiven for her sin. And he's saying, you, she loves me more than you do, Simon, because you think that you're right on the basis of your works and that you don't need my forgiveness. This woman knows that she needs my forgiveness. And so she loves me more than you do. As long as you suppose that your sins are but a small thing, then you will have little love for your Savior because you won't see the depth of his mercy to you and all that he did for you. Fifthly, it helps you to see how much you need to grow. And that keeps you striving. You know, when you see how guilty and defiled you are by all your sins, it motivates you to deal with them. That's the big problem I was talking about before. You don't care about your sins. You say, oh, well, it's a little thing. Everybody does that. No, whatever. It's not. No, it deserves God's wrath and curse forever. You need to get grip on that. You need to realize, accept that, face that, and quit dinking around. You, you can't just go on ignoring them. But like Paul, who, though he readily acknowledged that the Lord had radically transformed him, he still said, Philippians 3.12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I might lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. He was going forward, looking to grow. Sixthly, it helps you to be humble before God and others. So many Christians today will complain under their trials that they don't deserve what they have gotten. They are unable to say as Jacob did in 32.10, Genesis 32.10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of the truth, all the truth which you have shown your servant. Instead, their cries are, God has treated me unfairly. God has been unjust. Such an attitude, of course, annihilates any gratitude that you would have toward God for for his mercy to you. And what's more, it will cause you to deal arrogantly with others. You will come to your sinful neighbor, not as a sinner, one sinner to another seeking mercy from God, but as one who is horrified by what your neighbor has done. How could you do that? You will say. It's hard to act that way when you realize that you've just done a bunch of things for which you deserve to go to hell. How are you going to come with that kind of harsh manner toward another sinner? Seventhly, it helps you to see how much others need Christ. Now, that might sound contradictory to what, what, what I just said. But what I mean is that you come to realize that your neighbor needs the gospel just as you do. In 2 Corinthians 5.11 Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. When I see the terror and the wrath of God upon sin, I want to persuade people 
that they will turn from the, that they will flee from the wrath to come. It gives you an urgency about persuading others to come to Christ instead of a disdain toward them as if you're someone righteous and who are those people out there? You're there wanting to reach out to them in mercy and minister to them. God is a consuming fire and they need to be saved. So there are seven reasons why it is important for us to see that every sin, even the least, deserves God's wrath and curse, not only in this life, but also in that which is to come. What a holy God we serve, and what a merciful and powerful Savior He is. Instead of toning down what He has done for us, let us see more and more fully that we might know Him and the riches of His grace toward us in Christ Jesus. If we minimize our sin, we will never know the depths of His mercies. Let us give praise to our holy God and rejoice in his mercy to us through Jesus, our Savior, who became a curse for us that we might be saved. Please stand and let's pray. Gracious Lord, you have revealed to us the depths of your mercy in Jesus Christ by showing us how much we have been forgiven. One of the ways that we know your mercy. Transgression lies deep within our heart. It is a very wretched thing and it makes us obnoxious in your sight. It causes us to pervert your image in which we were created. It causes us to show that you don't even deserve to be obeyed. And it makes us unfit to have communion or fellowship with you. Sin is not a little thing, even the least infraction, because you are a holy God. But we thank you, Lord, that in the depths of your mercy and grace, that you have come to us with a saving remedy in your son, and that he came to bear our iniquities for us, that he took the curse upon himself on the cross, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And we thank you that by doing that, that we have complete atonement through faith in him. I pray, Lord, that as we grow in our understanding of your word and of who you are, that we would realize more and more how intolerable that you are towards sin, that it is not something that is trivial or something that is a little thing, that we would recognize these things so that we could have a a full appreciation for all that you have done in saving sinners like us. We know, Lord, that some have sought to change the song that says, uh, uh, saved, the, the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, to change it to someone like me, because they don't want to see the depth of the, of the sin that is in us. Father, truly, we are wretches, and we are guilty before you and deserving of eternal punishment for the very things that we have done this day. But we thank you, Lord, that in your son, that our sins are cleansed through faith in him because he was cursed in our place. There's no injustice done to your name because someone has paid the price. Lord, your name is vindicated because the penalty has been paid. We see the horror of sin by looking at the cross, just as we see it by looking at eternal punishment in hell 
one is equal to the other. And we praise you that through your remedy that we can have confidence in the forgiveness that we have. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord our God. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.